No. I'm not worried at all. I rely on God, Allah. Bismillah, alhamdulillah, wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillah. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Again, we are here for a noble reason, a very noble reason. United Islam Awareness Week. Being united upon the truth and being organized and united upon the truth and enjoining khair and goodness is a hard thing to achieve. It's a very hard thing to achieve because it's not a natural thing in an ecosystem which doesn't value the haq. It's a hard thing to do and unite upon that as well because when you live in an individualistic society, everyone cares about themselves, their own turf, their own personal material interests. United Islam Awareness Week has united four provinces, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Alberta, British Columbia. Do you know the, the amount of countries that could fit in here? The amount of different countries that can fit in just these provinces, right? I think you could fit Europe, right? In half of Canada, subhanAllah. So we're talking about half of Canada, right? Covering that huge amount of land and territory. Why? For the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to give the message of Islam. It's a, you know, think about it. It's hard for us to unite upon anything as a collective. So this is a ni'mah, is a blessing from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has chosen each and every one of you to be here tonight. Make no mistake about that. And if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has chosen you, we need to be grateful for that. Now, the speaker we have with us today, Sheikh Adnan Rashid, uh, I didn't know the depth and ability of this man until I spent some time with him. Because on paper, yes, there's formal education, yes, there's master's degrees, yes, there's ijazat, yes, there's like uh, debates you can see in speaker's corner, you know, where you know the sheikh is gonna go toe to toe with all these different people bringing questions about Islam from different angles. There's debates of him online, there's beautiful Islamic history le lectures online with Sheikh Adnan. So there's all these great things. Until we got the chance to spend some time together, I realized that uh, he is a treasure trove and a reference for so many uh, great objects, lessons, manuscripts of Islamic history. And the theme of United Islam Awareness Week is come back home. Come back home, right? Because home is where? Home is where the heart is, right? And we want Qalbun Salim. And, you know, subhanAllah, a lot of people, they don't find that peace and serenity where they are. So we want them to come back home to Islam, where your fitrah can grow. And the topic for the Shaykh's lecture is Dar al-Hikmah, the house of wisdom. Does Islam and science coexist, complement or conflict with one another? How does Islam's legacy of knowledge, creation and innovation enrich our lives today? Uh, Fadl al-Sheikh, Bismillah. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. 
الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على خاتم الأنبياء وسيد المرسلين وعلى آله وأصحابه الغر الميمين ومن تبعهم بإحسان إلى يوم الدين أما بعد أعوذ بالله الصمير لي من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم وما أرسلناك إلا رحمة للعالمين وقال رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم لا يؤمن أحدكم حتى أكون أحب إليه من والده وولده والناس يجمعين أو كما قال عليه الصلاة والسلام Respected brothers and sisters in Islam Let me thank you all for attending this uh, very special gathering uh, special because you are here and I have the opportunity to address you and it is an honor for myself to be here with you uh, I would say this is actually the first time I've come to Canada I've been to Canada before um, I went to Toronto and I was there for four days uh, but I never uh, addressed the audiences uh, in, uh, in this way so this is the first time actually I am addressing uh, audiences in Canada and I am very thankful very grateful uh, to the brothers um, who have invited me, in particular Dr. Omar and his team, uh, uh, Sheikh, uh, our beloved Sheikh, uh, who has introduced me lavishly. Uh, a lot of the things he said, I don't believe in them. I don't uh, let those things deceive me. I know my limits. Uh, this is his opinion, and he will answer for that. Uh, <laughs> so, um, uh, today's topic is a very important one. Um, I will address this topic in three segments. The first segment will be about the introduction to this civilization I'll talk about. How Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala introduced this particular phenomenon we know as the Islamic civilization, the Muslim civilization or the rise of the Muslim civilization. The seg second segment will be about the making of the Muslim civilization. What were the core principles that made the civilization, that made the civilization possible? And the third segment will be about the influence of this civilization, how this particular achievement called the Muslim civilization or the Islamic civilization uh, influenced other civilizations, in particular the Western civilization. And this is where the point comes in how we benefit from it today. How are we actually benefiting from the Muslim civilization today without realizing uh, that we are benefiting from, from it today? So to begin with the first segment, uh, the, the advent of Islam and subsequently the Muslim civilization was foretold by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala long before the Prophet of Islam was born. So the rise of the Muslim civilization was introduced by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala long before the Prophet of Islam uh, was conceived in Arabia. Okay, and what am I talking about? Firstly, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala makes that claim himself in the Quran. In the Quran, we are told in Surah Al-Araf in uh, verse 157, uh, and to, uh, to quote the words, I Bismillahirrahmanirrahim, fit Torah they find him mentioned with them in the Torah and in the Gospel, Injil. Uh, this is not the four Gospels, by the way. This is the Injil of Isa salam because this is a singular uh, this is, this is basically one Injil, not plurality of Injils as we find in the New Testament. So Allah is referring to the original Torah and 
the original Injil, but even though they have been altered, even though they have been changed, the Jews and the Christians still find him mentioned uh, in their books today. This is the claim Allah made in the 7th century when the Quran was revealed upon the Prophet right? So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told the Muslims that Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam was mentioned in the previous scriptures. Now, Ashabur Rasul, the companions of the Prophet went looking for these references. They were looking for these references in the scriptures of the Jews, of the, Jews and the Christians. And Umar bin Khattab an, once came running to the Prophet with one of the books of uh, the Jewish people. And he said, Ya Rasulullah, you are mentioned. And the Prophet became very angry and he said, even if Musa was alive today, he wouldn't have a choice but to follow me. Because I'm the final messenger of Allah. So Musa, if he was alive today, alayhi salam, he would follow me. And then later on, in another report, we are told that Abdullah bin Amr bin As, radiallahu an, was asked as to these signs or these references in the scriptures of the Jews and the Christians. And he gave a vague reference to Isaiah 42, which can be found in the Old Testament, right? In the Old Testament, we have this chapter or this book called Isaiah, Prophet Isaiah's writings allegedly, right? And he lived approximately uh, somewhere around uh, the 8th century BC, before Christ. And in his book we have this chapter which is to be found to this day in the Bible. If you open the Bible, the Old Testament, you see the book of Isaiah. You read chapter 42. The entire chapter is a prophecy about a personality, a person, a prophet king, a, mess a messianic figure coming in the future. It's a prophecy about someone coming in the future. And this person will have certain qualities, some characteristics, and these characteristics are described in quite detail. And what are these characteristics? And you can go away and read the chapter yourself and see whether what I'm telling you is actually there. So these characteristics are that this person will be a chosen one from Allah. God will choose him for a specific person. And Allah is pleased with him. Allah is pleased with him. And he will take the law which will be given to him to islands. In other words, islands will wait for his law. His law will be taken Across, uh, across the islands, I mean uh, islands around the world, basically his law will spread throughout the world and he will bring peace to the world, he will bring judgment, justice to the world and he will put idol worshippers to shame, he will bring people from dungeons of darkness into light. Literally these are, these are the words you find in the book of Isaiah chapter 42. He will bring people from darkness into light so all of these characteristics can be vague, they can be applied to anyone. Christians claim that these are uh, basically characteristics of Jesus Christ, although they're not. But then in verse number 11, there is a geographical reference. That cannot be uh, applied to anyone else but the Prophet of Islam. And what is that reference? That is the geography of the person who is being foretold. And what is that? The geography is basically the villages of Kedar. Let the people of Kedar, let the villages of Kedar rejoice. These are the words. Let them sing from the top of the mountains. Let the people of Sela, okay, 
sing from the top of the mountains. So, who are the people of Kedar? What mountains are being referred to? And where is Sela? To cut the long story short, Kedar was the second son of Ismail according to the book of Genesis. He had 12 sons and he's the second born. His name was Qaydar. In Arabic, it's Qaydar. And in the Bible, he's spelt as with K, Qaydar. Okay. Now, when you look at the genealogies of the Prophet ﷺ, going back to Ismail ﷺ, we have two of them. Okay. Adnan beyond, we have two of them. The Prophet ﷺ, he uh, gave instructions specifically on describing his genealogy. He said, do not go beyond Adnan because beyond Adnan, the genealogy is questionable. Up to Ismail the genealogy is questionable, right? Questionable in the sense that uh, the, the record has been lost. There is no doubt the Prophet was a descendant of Ismail because that we can fi find from Sahih reports from the Prophet There are a hadith where the Prophet explains that he comes from the line of Ismail right? He is definitely a descendant of Ismail But each and every single person, their names within the genealogy, uh, Ismail downwards, we don't have the details. So one of the genealogies that can be found in uh, the, the history of uh, uh, Muhammad bin Ishaq, uh, Sirah of Ibn Ishaq, which was the first systematic uh, biography of the Prophet ﷺ written in the second century um, Hijri. In this we find a genealogy of the Prophet ﷺ going back to Qaydar. Then there is another one that goes back to the firstborn who was Nabat. Nabat was the firstborn of Ismail ﷺ. Nevertheless, one of the genealogies goes through Qaydar. Okay? And that has been documented in the books of Sirah by the people, by the scholars of uh, the history of the Prophet ﷺ, in particular the experts on the seerah of the Prophet ﷺ. So the point is that the reference to Qaydar can uh, mean no one else other than the Prophet ﷺ. It is definitely the Prophet of Islam. Then we move forward to uh, the, the, the more specific reference to the location. Salah is a mountain in Medina. There is a mountain called Salah in Medina. In Arabic, it is spelt with Saad, Lam, Ain, Salah, right? In the book of Isaiah, the spelling in the English translation is Sela, S-E-L-A, right? So you cannot get more specific than this. And it goes on to say that this person will be a messenger of God and he will triumph against his enemies. His enemies will not be able to harm him. They will not be able to destroy him. So this is a very large, uh, a, a very detailed prophecy in the book of Isaiah. Now why am I telling you this? I'm telling you this because the civilization of Islam, the rise of this civilization was foretold in this very prophecy by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala through Prophet Isaiah if he, was, if he was indeed a prophet of Allah we cannot say yes or no but the prophecy is attributed to him and it fits no one else except uh, the messenger of Allah and this was confirmed even by the companions of the Prophet because when Abdullah bin Amr bin As described the prophecy we can see the correlation between what he described and the book of Isaiah chapter 42 in particular 
Now, having cl uh, clarified that, we can see that in this particular prophecy, one of the characteristics was he will bring justice to the world. He will take people out of darkness and bring them to light. Okay? And islands will wait for his law. The word for law in Hebrew is Torah. So this is not the Torah of Moses. Because the word Torah actually means the law. In the Hebrew language, it means the law. And clearly, this is not the law of Moses because this is someone coming after Moses. Why? Because Isaiah lived in the 8th century BC. And this was uh, nearly four centuries after Moses, Musa alayhi salam. So this is a prophecy for the future, a new law coming in the future. Now, putting all these things together, these prophecies or these descriptions or these characteristics do not match anyone other than the Prophet especially when we look at, look at the geography uh, of this person. He will come from the villages of Kaidar. Kaidar was in Arabia because Ismail was in Arabia and this is clearly stated in the book of um, Genesis chapter 21. We see that Ismail was left in the wilderness of Paran by his father and Paran is Arabia. This is very clear even in the Bible. In the text of the Bible we see that Paran is Arabia. No one denies that. If Paran is in, uh, is, is, is in Arabia, then Kedar, the second son of Ismail, is also in Arabia. And if that's the case, the prophecy is about Arabia and the reference to Salah makes it very clear that this is Medina. So one of the characteristics is justice. His law will spread to islands. And the Prophet ﷺ, he told the Jews and the Christians that I have been foretold in your scriptures. And some of the Jewish scholars did recognize that. In fact, Jewish scholars were warning the Jewish people around Medina that the Messiah foretold in our books is expected at this very spot. And Ibn Ishaq in his sirah states that there is uh, a reference to a scholar, a Jewish scholar, his name was Ibn al-Hayban. He came to Yathrib, later on called Medina, Medina al-Nabi, this very city. He came to the city and he told the Jewish people of this city that that Messiah is expected very soon. Stay put, do not leave this place. And the question is, why were the Jewish people flocking around Medina? Why were they choosing Arabia over fertile lands of the Levant or Iraq, let's say. Why were they choosing this barren territory to come and live in this place? Because they were actually expecting that foretold Messiah at this very spot. And this is how they used to taunt the people of Aus and Khazraj, the original inhabitants of this land, that when that Messiah comes, we will deal with you. And this is why when these people heard about the Prophet of Allah in Mecca, they came and they invited him to Medina. That the, Jew, the Jewish people have already been telling us about you. Now that you have come, please come to Medina and live with us. All of this is there. So, this was the rise of the Muslim civilization. Allah foretold this. In previous scriptures, before the revelation of the Quran, this was Allah's plan. That Allah will bring about a prophet a messenger, he will come from Arabia, he will be a descendant of Ismail and he will do these things, one after another. And one of those things is the establishment 
of this new order based upon this new law this new torah this new way of life this new system and this system will bring about justice and peace in the world people will be brought from the dungeons of darkness into light and lo and behold 7th century a prophet is born he claims to be a prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam revelations start coming upon him the first revelation that's given to him is about reading even though he's he himself is unlettered when he's told to read he says ma ana bi qari'in i am not learned and this happens in the cave of hira now amazingly shockingly even this is foretold in the very book i mentioned earlier the book of isaiah chapter 29 of the book of isaiah verse 12 gives us a reference to this very incident and it states and i quote the words when the book is given to the one who is not learned and it is said to him read he will say i am not learned he will say i am not learned you don't believe me go and pick up the book of isaiah the bible from any church open the book of isaiah chapter 29 verse 12 these words are there so when the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam is in the cave of hira jibril appears to him and he tells him read iqra and he says ma ana bi qari'in i am not learned i cannot read and then the first five verses of suratul alaq are revealed upon him and he takes these verses and he runs back to makkah he goes to his wife zammiluni zammiluni laqad khashitu ala nafsi cover me cover me i fear for my life i do not understand what happened to me and then she takes him to waraka bin nawfal a man who had read these scriptures having heard the story waraka tells him hadhan namus alladhi nazzala allahu ala musa this is the same spirit that descended upon moses ya laytani an akuna hayyan iz yukhrijuka qaumuka i wish i will be alive on the day when your people drive you out the prophet when he heard this he said awa mukhrijihum they will drive me out why what have i done and then waraka tells him anyone who came with this message was driven out by his people so waraka told him this based upon his knowledge of the scriptures the jewish and the christian scriptures he knew that this message this story or this experience he had in the cave can only happen to the one who's been foretold so begins the civilization of islam so that was the first segment how allah subhanahu wa ta'ala introduced this civilization or the rise thereof in the previous scriptures and then comes the second segment which was basically how was this civilization made in the first place how was it made what principles what underlying principles did allah use to make this civilization possible to cut the very long story short to simplify things we have a chain of events that occurred i call it the golden chain of events that gave rise to what we call the civilization of islam the muslim civilization that stretched from china to spain this was the largest territory ever taken by one group of people in the history of humanity to date okay to that date in the 7th century even alexander the great his territory was not as large as that okay and this territory was held for over a thousand years it is still 
part of the Muslim civilization excepting Spain. Spain was lost in the 15th century. So how did that happen? And even that expansion was foretold again by Allah in the Quran. The first time it was foretold was in the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament. The expansion of Islam. Islands will wait for his law. Islands. And if you look at all these territories where Islam went, these are all islands. Spain is a peninsula. It is called the Iberian Peninsula. India is a peninsula. Okay. The law of Islam went as far as uh, eyes could see or not see at that time. Subhanallah. Ashab al-Rasul, they started from a little village called Madinatul Nabi. By our standards today, it was a village. And this prophet was telling his companions repeatedly, telling his companions repeatedly that there will be a rise of this civilization. You will see things happening. You will see this, you will see that. For example, he told one of his companions, Adi bin Hatim radiallahu an, that Adi, if you live long enough, you will see that a woman comes riding a beast on her own. She will make tawaf around the Kaaba and she will go back unmolested. Arabia will become so secure that a woman will make tawaf around the Kaaba. This is, by, by the way, Sahih al-Bukhari. Then you will see that you will have so much wealth that you will not have any poor people claiming that from you. No one will be begging. And you will see that you will open the treasures of Kisra. So when Adi heard that, you know the first two things were not so incredible. Right? Okay, fine. These will, but the third thing was so incredible that he had to actually confirm whether the Prophet وسلم, uh, is referring to Kisra bin Hurmuz, the, <laughs> the Persian emperor. You know, when he heard that, it's like someone telling you, you know, a village in Bangladesh or a village in, let's say, uh, you know, India, let's say, or Pakistan or Somalia or, you know, any, any other country. Lebanon, let's say, okay? <laughs> I don't want to hurt the sentiments of brothers I haven't mentioned, okay? <laughs> any country, Afghanistan, let's say, right? Small village. And the Imam Saab came to the village and he said, you know what, you guys, you will take on Actually, in the case of Afghanistan, it's been shown to be true. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So let's not discuss Afghanistan. Afghanistan is an exception, right? Uh, but a village will take on Russia, China, and the US altogether. Superpowers, right? Superpowers of the time, today. So people will just send this Maulana or the Sheikh to the doctor, to the psychiatrist, you know. This guy needs treatment because he's talking incredible things. So Adi bin Hatim, when he heard that, he said, Ya Rasulullah, Kisra bin Hurmuz? He said, Kisra bin Hurmuz, you will open his treasures. And Adi, who is reporting the hadith, he said, I saw the woman come alone and make tawaf and go back. I saw the treasures of Kisra opened in front of my eyes. I witnessed when the city of Kisra, the Persian emperor, was conquered by the Muslims and the treasure was handled by the Muslims, right? The, the, the capital called Stasiphon or Madain was taken by the Muslims. And I am sure the third 
prophecy will be fulfilled and it happened in the time of Umar bin Abdul Aziz when there was so much wealth with the Muslims uh, announcements were being made come and take charity zakat sadaqa no one's claiming no one's claiming and this is less than a century of the Prophet so Allah made this very prophecy in the Quran Allah repeated that prophecy in the Quran and that prophecy can be found in Surah An-Nur verse 55. A'udhu billahi minash shaitanir rajeem. Bismillahir rahmanir rahim. Wa'ada Allahu alladhina amanu minkum wa 'amilu s-salihat la yastakhlifannahum fil ard kama stakhlafa alladhina min qablihim. It is a promise of Allah to those who believe among you and do righteous deeds that Allah will give you succession in the land. And who is being told this? People who don't know if they will live tomorrow. Ashab rasul some of them did, didn't have enough clothes to wear. We have a report in Bukhari, Sahih al-Bukhari, in Kitab al-Salah. A sahabi came to the Prophet ﷺ. He asked the Prophet ﷺ, Ya Rasulullah, is Salah acceptable in one piece of cloth? In one piece of cloth. I'm trying to give you a picture of the companions of Rasulullah who the Quran is talking to, telling them these incredible things, right? And the Prophet responded by saying, Do all of you have two pieces of cloth? The Prophet is surprised that this question is being asked. Why? Because most of them have only one piece of cloth to wear in which they do their salah. Allahu Akbar. These are the companions of Rasulullah sallallahu And Allah is telling them, you will do kada wa kada. This will happen. And then the Prophet ﷺ, he's besieged by the Qurayshis, by the Ahzab. Hence the name of the battle, Ghazwatul Ahzab, the battle of the ditch. He's surrounded. And then a rock emerges when they're digging the ditch for their protection. They cannot break the rock. They ask the Prophet to come and do it. The Prophet ﷺ strikes the rock thrice. Each time a spark emerges and he says, Allahu Akbar. And the Sahaba ask him, Ya Rasulullah, and the rock shatters. Third time, he strikes the rock, the rock shatters. They ask him, and what is the situation? The situation is, it's only 300 of them later on. They don't know if they're going to survive this. They can't even go to the toilet. Okay, they don't know if they're going to survive this. And the Prophet ﷺ couldn't even pray his salah. He had to pray all his salah later on, on the day of the battle, when the battle was intense in Ghazatul Ahzab and he's telling his companions what? They asked him, why did you say Allahu Akbar when each spark emerged? The Prophet ﷺ told them, the first spark, Allah foretold me of a victory over the Arabs. Okay. Then the second spark, not only the Arabs, Allah told me of a victory over the Persians. And the third spark, Allah foretold uh, the victory over the Byzantines, the Romans. So if you think of these people who are in the ditch, dicking with the Prophet ﷺ, not knowing whether they will survive this attack or this invasion, okay, they are being told not only that you will defeat these people who are coming, okay, you will defeat the Persians, the Persian Empire, the Sassanid Persian Empire, and you will defeat the Byzantines, the Byzantines, the superpowers of the world. Now those people who are listening, Okay, 
I can only imagine what they were going through at the time. And because they loved the Messenger of Allah, they believed in him and they believed in his promise and they believed that this man cannot lie. He is upon the haqq and he is talking from revelation. He speaks from revelation. Therefore, it will happen. And guess what? It happened. It happened. In the time of Umar bin Khattab radiallahu anh, both of these empires, not only the Arabs, both of these empires were subdued. The battle of Qadasiyah on the Persian territory and the battle of Yarmouk on the Roman territory, which is currently Jordan, both of these battles determined the, the Muslim expansion into the Roman and the Persian territory. And the Muslims took all of this land. Within 50 years after the Prophet in fact, within a century, the Prophet died in 11 Hijri, 632 CE. The year 732 CE, using the Gregorian calendar, the Muslims, where were they? Who is going to tell me? Let me, okay. Uh, you know because you've been listening to my talks. <laughs> so I, I want someone to surprise me with their knowledge of history. In 732 CE, exactly a century after the Prophet ﷺ passed away, where were the Muslims? Okay, Spain. Who else? China. Okay, where else? Sorry? France. Okay. Sindh. Yeah. Okay. Sicily. Okay. So the map has been completed. Thank you. So thank you very much. Okay, we work together. This is what coordination does, right? We we got uh, we got China. We got <laughs> no. We got Spain. We got China. We got India. In the year 732 CE, the Muslims were in northern France, 500 miles from London, in a place called Poitiers. And a famous battle took place called the Battle of Tours, or the Battle of Poitiers. And uh, on the eastern front, the Muslims were in northern China. And in the south or southern territory, Muslims were in India, current day Pakistan, in the territory of Sindh, where Muhammad bin Qasim was leading the Muslim armies there, or he, he, already, he had already led these armies. So this was the largest expansion of land in human history to that date. No group of people before this particular expansion, or this particular uh, explosion, you can call it, of expansion. And to this day, historians are baffled. I'm talking about secular Western historians who are writing on this phenomenon, who have written on early Islamic conquests and expansion, they are baffled. They don't know how it happened. Why was it that all of these empires crumbled in front of these ill-equipped Arabs? Some of them, uh, they don't have clothes to wear. Some of them don't have cases to cover their swords. They don't have proper equipment. They don't have any special uh, military gear. And lo and behold, they have defeated the Romans and the Persians simultaneously. And according to us, the Muslims, it was Allah's doing. Allah prophesied, Allah prophesied in the Quran, it happened. So now that the Muslims have taken this territory, this question has been addressed as to why this territory was taken so rapidly.
This territory was taken so rapidly because of the behavior of the Muslims. I'm not saying this. A lot of historians have been saying this. One of them actually is um, a very important um, person to read, and his name is Professor Thomas Arnold. Okay, he had written a book specifically on the expansion of Islam. His book is titled The Preaching of Islam. He was uh, a philosopher and a historian par excellence. He was uh, teaching in India during the colonial period. He taught at the Aligarh University. He taught uh, at the government co college Lahore. He taught philosophy. He was one of the teachers of Muhammad Iqbal, the famous poet. Right? He was very deeply inspired by the Islamic civilization. He had some of the ulama as his friends. He had seen the Orientalist onslaught against the Muslim civilization, how the Orientalists were trying to paint the Muslim civilization as, uh, as an expansion of tyranny and, and, and oppression. Right? So he took it upon himself to read history and write a book to put the record straight. And he did that. And this powerful book, he put down all the details as to how Islam expanded into these territories so rapidly. Why did this happen? Was it tyranny and oppression? Was it threatening behavior? Was it destruction? Was it mass murder? Was it exploitation of resources? Was it plunder? Was it genocide? What was it? Or was it something else? And he claims one of the reasons why this expansion happened was the very tolerant and compassionate behavior of the Muslims which they promised when they approached people. So the people of Syria opened their gates for the Muslims to undo the oppression and the tyranny of the Byzantines, the Romans who were ruling the territory of Syria. Now, without going into too much details, I want to move on to the next segment. Uh, before I do that, I just want to quickly explain this, that the Romans followed a version of Christianity. And that version was called the Chalcedonian Christianity. Okay? And the masses in Syria and Egypt were orthodox. They were basically uh, following a different version of Christianity. So the, the ruling class, the Romans, were oppressing the masses. They were trying to forcefully convert the masses into their own denomination or their own understanding of uh, Christianity. For that reason... Uh, the people in the land of Syria and Egypt were extremely sick of the Roman behavior, even though they were Christians. So when the Muslims came, they opened the gates for the Muslims. They told the Muslims to come and liberate us from the Romans. We are oppressed. And the first time Muslims appeared uh, in front of Damascus, they looked scruffy. They came from the desert. So when the people of Damascus were looking at them, they thought, these guys are going to chew us alive. You know, these barbarians from the desert, uh, you know, dust all over them, okay, dressed in sheepskin and all that. Okay, uh, these, and the Byzantines or the, the, the people of Damascus were civilized, you know, in the material sense. Okay, so when they looked at these people, they said, no, no, no. They fought and then Damascus was taken by force. Half of the city was taken by force. The other half was taken by treaty. Okay? In the Arabic language, we use the term Anwatan and Sulhan. Anwatan is by force, Sulhan is by treaty. So Khalid bin Walid, he took part of the city, Sulhan, and Abu Ubaidah bin Jarrah, he took the other half by force. Right? So, long story short, the people of Damascus came under the rule of Islam. 
Jizya was charged. They started to live with the Muslims. And then Emperor Heraclius came with a large army. The Roman Emperor, Herakal, who is also mentioned in Bukhari, Sayyid al-Bukhari, in the reports of Sayyid al-Bukhari, right? Who had interviewed Abu Sufyan about the advent of the Prophet So this same emperor, he raised an army to take back the land of Jordan, Syria, Lebanon and Palestine from the Muslims, the Arabs who had taken this land. So when the Muslims were facing this situation, they had two choices, either to fight an open pitch battle or fight a siege, siege battle. Abu Ubaidah bin Jarrah, he chose uh, the first option, which was to fight an open pitch battle. And because Jizya was charged to protect the Christians of the city, because the promise was made, you pay us this tax, we will protect you. We'll protect your property, we'll protect your basically places of worship, we'll protect you. Everything to do with your lives, it is under our protection. That's the promise we make. So now because the Muslims can, can, could no longer protect them, because they had to retreat, Abu Ubaidah, he ordered his treasurer, to refund the money back to the Christians. Now, hold on a second, just, just think about this. This is the 7th century, when no laws and rules were followed. In fact, in a situation like this, people were stripped naked. When there was a military, when there's an army in need of money, people were robbed dry. So when the Christians received this money back, they were shocked. They said to the Muslims that this is unbelievable. If Romans were in your place, they would have taken everything we have. Not that they would return the money, they would take everything we have. What kind of people are you? And this has been reported, by the way, by Christian historians. One of them is Dionysius, who was writing in the 9th century. He reports this. And Qadi Abu Yusuf, in his Kitab al-Khiraj, one of the students of Imam Abu Hanifa, he also refers to this incident. That Abu Ubaidah bin Jarrah commanded his treasurer to return the money. Long story short, the Muslims withdraw. They fight the Battle of Yarmouk on the banks of River Yarmouk, which is in Jordan. The Roman army is defeated never to return again. The Roman army has lost Syria forever. The greater Syria, you know, the land of Levant. Greater Syria. Greater Syria means Palestine, Lebanon, Jordan, and Asham. Lost forever. Romans never returned. They only lost more territory, never returned after this. So the Muslims returned to the city of Damascus the second time. This time, the people of Damascus know them. The first time they came from the desert, they didn't know them. So when they come back now this time, the people of Damascus open the gates and they are crying, Christians, receiving the Muslims, crying, thanking God that it is the Muslims who came back, not the Christian Byzantines, the Romans. This has been reported by Christian historians. Allahu Akbar. Allahu Akbar. And then, same thing happened in Egypt when Muslims come to Egypt. Amr bin As leading the armies. The Coptic Christians open the gates because they want to free themselves from the Byzantine territory. So they come under the rule of um, the Muslims. Same thing happened in Spain when Muslims arrived in Spain later on. In 711 CE, 92 Hijri was the year when Tariq bin Ziyad landed um, at Gibraltar and later on mainland Spain. Uh, the Jewish people opened the gates of the cities for the Muslims because they were facing heavy persecution um, uh, uh, from the Catholic Church. So the Muslims took all of this land 
in Iberian, in Iberian Peninsula within no time. Within four years, Tariq bin Ziyad had conquered most of Spain. Thomas Arnold argues that one of the reasons why this happened was because the natives, the locals of these lands, they welcomed the Muslims as liberators against the tyranny they were facing uh, from the empires that were ruling them. Now the Muslims have taken this land. Long story short, what happened? Did they plunder? Did they exploit? Did they, uh, you know, put people in dungeons, torture them? Did they extract all the gold and silver from the churches? Did they destroy places of worship? No. What they did was they signed treaties with these people. They signed treaties in Spain, and the text of the treaty can be found in history books. They signed a treaty with the Patriarch of Jerusalem, Patriarch Sophronius, uh, and the treaty, the text can be found in the history of Imam Ibn Jarir al-Tabari. And then they signed a treaty with the people of uh, Egypt. Uh, they signed a treaty with basically every single land the Muslims went in. The, generally speaking, the text of the treaty stated that your places of worship, your churches, your bishops will stay in place. No one will be removed from power so long as you remain in peace. You don't rebel, you don't fight. You don't give refuge to our enemies, don't conspire against us, you will live in peace. You may practice your religions as you like, you may worship in your churches, the Jewish people remain in the synagogues, the Christians go back to their denominations and the churches, and the Christians were not allowed to fight each other like they were in the past. So Muslims brought a lot of peace with them, right? And from this peace came progress. So the four, the four locks of the golden chain I was talking about are... Number one, the revelation of the Quran in the 7th century upon the Prophet ﷺ. Number two, justice that came from the teachings of the Quran. Because the Quran taught these believers, these Muslims, these Arabs to be just. For example, Surah An-Nisa verse 135 and Surah Al-Ma'idah verse 8. Allah tells the believers to be just. Even if you dislike a people, don't oppress them, don't be unjust with them because Allah loves justice. So these people, they came with justice. Wherever they went, they established justice. Okay. Number three, from this justice came peace. And then from that peace came progress, what we call the rise of the Islamic civilization. So going backwards, there is no progress without peace. Do you agree? Do you agree? There is no progress without peace. It's impossible. You cannot make progress if there's a war going on. Right? Nations go down if peace disappears from, uh, from society. Okay, one example is South Africa. It's very unfortunate. It's a very, very beautiful country with beautiful people. Amazing country with amazing people. Because there is no peace for people, the country is going down. The country is going down and no one disagrees with that. Financially, economically, uh, politically, the country is going down. The South African airline has, uh, has collapsed and slowly other institutions are collapsing. Why? Because peace has gone missing. Okay? Peace is no, no more. So all the progress that was made in South Africa is being lost slowly. Okay, so when peace disappears, you cannot make progress. And peace cannot come about without justice. Justice is basically when people are treated justly. There is no miscarriage, there is no torture, there, are, there is no rendition, there is no, basically, no kidnapping, no missing persons and all that. Right? So, 
and justice comes from the Quran. So this is the golden chain of events that occurred in the history of Islam from the expansion of Islam when the Prophet ﷺ and his companions took territory. They brought that justice of Islam uh, to these people, established it, put it there, implemented the law of Islam on the land and let people live by their own laws. People were allowed their judicial autonomies. The Jewish people practiced their own law in their own uh, social circles. So did the Christians. So Muslims did not impose the Sharia law upon the Jews and the Christians, by the way. Not many people know this. The Christians continued to farm pigs. They continued to produce wine in Muslim lands. There were wine factories under the protection of Islamic governments. Why? Because the Christians do it. They drink. Muslims don't. So it was one of their... Uh, think uh, you know they wanted to do it likewise the Jewish people they were allowed to live within their own uh, quarters with their own law so this brought about that peace people wanted right and when that peace came then followed progress so this golden chain of events keep in mind okay keep in mind okay the first event was what the revelation of the Quran. The second was justice. The third was peace. And then the fourth was progress. Okay. No peace, no progress. No justice, no peace. No Quran, no justice. Period. Period. This is exactly what the Muslims are doing. And when this justice and peace was established, then came about what we know today as the Muslim civilization from Spain to China, okay? And uh, I'm not claiming a utopia. I'm not, take, I'm not claiming uh, my little pony land where, you know, ponies were flying around, fairies and rainbows, and, uh, you know, everyone was living in peace and all. There were periods of turmoil. There were conflicts. There were rebellions. There were disturbances, no doubt, right? But generally speaking, the pattern of the Muslim civilization from China to Spain was coexistence, People lived in peace. Generally speaking, the overwhelming uh, reality of that period for over a thousand years, Muslims were flourishing with other societies and other civilizations and other communities. And the result was the rise of what we call the science of Islam or the Islamic science. Okay, I'm not talking about theological sciences. I'm not talking about hadith, tafsir, Quran. Uh, this was happening across the board. From Spain to China, Muslims had started to read and write because the first command in the Quran was Ikra bismi rabbika alladhi khalaq khalaq al-insana min alaq Okay, Ikra wa rabbuka al-akram alladhi allama bil qalam allama al-insan ma'alam ya'lam So the first revelation to humanity uh, in the Quran, in the final book from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is about reading, read, pick up the pen, start using the pen So this civilization was a civilization of pen and reading so Muslims started to read from China to Spain and the result was book production on a massive scale the largest libraries in the history of the world were produced in this territory because of the peace uh, that was established by the law the justice of Islam and because of that people started to flourish in academies in schools in colleges in madaris the jews and the christians and the muslims were studying in these institutions free of charge in baghdad in damascus in Kerouan, okay and uh, in, uh, in uh, samarkand and bukhara and cordoba and and uh, toledo the city of toledo in spain all of these centers of learning 
they were producing works uh, of unprecedented scale. Greek works on science, on medicine, on philosophy were translated. And not everything was positive that came from the Greeks. Uh, some of these things caused problems. Uh, for example, uh, uh, some of the issues that were caused later on within the Muslim civilization uh, were extreme rationality, you know, questioning of every single uh, concept of Islam. And that gave rise to the, the school of Mu'tazila. Uh, they became the rationalists, right? But not every single um, outcome result was negative. A lot of books were translated into the Arabic language from other civilizations. Persian literature was translated into the Arabic language. Indian works were translated into the Arabic language, spe specifically in Baghdad. Baghdad became a center of learning and uh, there was a place established called Baytul Hikmah and this happened in the time of Al-Mansur, uh, Khalifa Al-Mansur, who ruled uh, for, uh, uh, he ruled from 130, 136 uh, Hijri to 1, um, 58, if, if I'm not mistaken, from 136 Hijri to 158, he basically established a school called Baytul Hikmah, where all of this wisdom from other civilizations was translated. So, what did the Muslims do? Muslims mastered their own sciences. Muslims had mastered their Quran, their tafsir, their hadith, their literature, their poetry. So, the Muslims are already masters of their tradition, their history. And then Muslims started to look into other civilizations to take benefit from their works. So a lot of medicine, works on medicine were translated from the Greek language into the Arabic language. Works on hydraulics, works on astronomy, works on cartography, works on different fields were translated in Baghdad. And the caliphs themselves, after Mansur came Harun al-Rashid and Harun al-Rashid uh, was succeeded by al-Ma'moon and al-Mu'tasim and the list goes on. A lot of these people of course had issues with them. Uh, with the Akida, but they did some great work in creating this civilization, this progress that gave rise to the libraries and the academies of Al-Andalus and places like Samarkand and Bukhara in Central Asia. And then what happened was that the most technologically advanced, the most educated, the most intellectually sound or intellectually advanced people in the world were found in the Muslim lands. The Muslim scholars, the Muslim thinkers, the Muslim philosophers, the Muslim theologians, the Muslim poets, the Muslim writers, the authors, Muslim uh, book producers, booksellers, bookmakers, you name it, they were found in the Muslim lands and these were the best people in the world. And not only that, the Jewish people who were coexisting with the Muslims in these lands from Baghdad to Spain, they took full advantage of this civilization. Jewish people learned the Arabic language. They started, they started to write books in the Arabic language. In fact, Jewish scholars, Jewish historians confirm that the golden age of the house of Israel, the golden age of the Jewish people was under the domain of Islam in Spain, in Al-Andalus, from 950 to 1250, for 300 years in particular, this, this period, these 300 years, was the golden age of the Jewish people. This was the time when the best scholars, the best theologians, the best philosophers, the best poets, the best grammarians, the best scientists in the Jewish history were produced. So much so that to this day, the Jewish people refer to their scholars, their scholarly works of that period. Am I making this up? 
No, I'm not. For example, who is the most important person in Jewish history after Moses himself? Sorry? After the prophets, after the prophets. Okay. Musa Maimonides. Absolutely. His name was Musa bin Maimun. Born in Kartaba, in Cordoba, in the 12th century. Writing in the Arabic language, using Hebrew characters. One of the most learned men in Jewish history. And he's called today, among the Jewish people, he's called the second Moses. His name was Musa, of course. That important he is and his legacy. He's called Rambam in Jewish circles. Rambam. His name is, if you look, speak to a rabbi, if you ever meet a rabbi, ask him, who was Rambam? And they will tell you, that was Maimonides, Musa bin Maimun, born in Kartaba during the Islamic period, writing in the Arabic language. One of his most famous works on philosophy was A Guide for the Perplexed. Right? And he was a product of the Muslim civilization. One of the most powerful Jewish politicians, Jewish physicians, Jewish influential was born again during the Muslim period in the 10th century. His name was Hazdai ibn Shaprut. He was the prime minister to the most powerful king in Western Europe. And who was that? Who was going to tell me? Yes, he was the prime minister of the caliphate in Kartaba. So the Khilafa in Kartaba, the Umayyad Khilafa of Kartaba, was ruled by Abdurrahman III. Abdurrahman III was the most powerful monarch in Western Europe who ruled Spain. Okay? And the prime minister of this most powerful Muslim king in Western Europe was a Jewish physician called Hazdai ibn Shaprut. So prosperous was he that he was writing letters to Jewish communities around the world asking them if they need any support. The caliph here is a huge well-wisher of the Jewish people. He will do anything to protect us around the world. Tell us if you need any help. He was writing letters to the rabbis of Iraq who were also governed by the Muslims at the time and he was writing letters uh, to the Jewish people of uh, Caucasus region uh, also known as the, the Jews of Khazaria or Khazar Jews um, and he was asking them if they are the lost ten tribes of the house of Israel. He was trying to find those ten tribes because uh, if you know the history of the Jewish people uh, initially there were twelve tribes and uh, Ten tribes completely disappeared from history because of the Assyrian invasion that took place in uh, the 8th century BC when the entire, uh, entire population of these ten tribes was taken into um, custody and they, they were taken as slaves to the Assyrian territory and they, they were never found. So what remains of the Jewish people today is basically two and a half tribes. Okay, the Benjamites, the Levites and the Judahites. Right? So Hazda ibn Shaprut, using his power and influence, was trying to find those ten tribes. Where are they? Where did they go? Right? So the point I'm making is some of the best Jewish intellectuals, influentials, scholars, theologians, poets, authors were produced in this region, ruled by Muslims, 
using the law which was promised by Allah in the book of Isaiah 1300 years before the Prophet of Islam was born this is how these people flourished and some of the books produced in this territory uh, were so advanced that the Europeans in the West were completely blown away they felt the need to translate these books into Latin so that they can also learn from the Muslims and using the case of Britain in particular now coming to how Muslims and moving on to the third phase right or the third segment of my lecture my talk and my time is running out because we want to move to the Q&A as well very soon inshallah um, how did this civilization established in the Muslim lands influence other places and other people uh, so all of these works were translated into the Latin language and shifted to European territories like France, Britain, Germany and Italy and scholars studying these works from the Arabs they started to establish their own institutions to use one example in particular of Britain let's say we talk about Britain in particular and, and put aside Germany, France and Italy uh, many British scholars in the 10th, the 11th and the 12th and even in the 13th century for 400 years were traveling to Spain Englishmen, British men traveling to Spain to learn the Arabic language to go and teach this knowledge back in Britain and uh, one man in particular in the 12th century was Daniel of Morley who came from uh, Midlands in Britain he traveled to Spain learnt at the Arabic language sat with the Arabs learnt what he had to learn came back to Britain and then was advised by the Bishop of Norwich Bishop John to establish schools of uh, philosophy in Oxford these schools later on became the Oxford the famous Oxford University how many people know that that the Oxford University is a direct product of knowledge that came from Spain and Sicily so there were people like Adelard of Bath there were people like Daniel of Morley Robert the Scot Robert of Ketton for example Robert of Ketton was an Englishman who translated the Quran into Latin for the first time in history and this happened during the time of the Crusades when the Crusades were going on so the so this man Robert of Ketton had learned learned the Arabic language in Spain and started to translate the Quran into Latin language and the list goes on many books on alchemy on uh, medicine on philosophy the philosophy of Ibn Rushd who was a scholar of Islam par excellence the author of Bidayatul Mujtahid which is still taught in uh, Islamic schools and academies to this day he was also a philosopher who had written commentaries on the, on, on the works of Aristotle Aristotle Arastu was completely lost to the western world it was Ibn Rushd who brought Aristotle back to the westerners so European scholars who studied Aristotle they studied Aristotle through the Arabic lens they were using Arabic translations or the works of Aristotle to study them in places like Paris, in Naples, uh, in, and, in British academies, uh, at places like um, uh, Oxford, right? So all of this was happening in the 12th century and then came about the 12th century Renaissance. There was a revolution of knowledge and learning that took place in Western Europe entirely based upon Muslim works uh, pioneered by Arabic scholars who were writing in the Arabic language in places like Baghdad, in Spain and in Central Asia. So all of these books were being 
transferred from all these territories to Spain. And when did that happen? Hakam II, Spanish caliph, his name was Hakam II, had the largest library in the world. Listen to this carefully. He had the largest library in the world. He had agents working for him. For example, let's say uh, we have a caliph uh, somewhere uh, in some territory uh, uh, and he has agents working for him on all, in, in all capitals in the world, in Karachi, in Cairo, in uh, Kuala Lumpur, in New York, and in Canada. And what are these agents doing? They are simply collecting books for him. They are simply, their job is nothing more just to collect books. Any ancient manuscript, any important work on any important topic has to be bought and shifted to Spain. So Hakam II accumulated an, a, a library of 400,000 volumes. This was the largest library ever assembled in human history to date again. And this happened in the 10th century. Okay? And what was the outcome? These works were now basically copied and disseminated uh, to all major Spanish cities in places like Toledo, Seville, Valencia. And these libraries were publicly available for people to walk in and start reading these books. So Cordoba became the most civilized city in the world. There were street lights and paved roads in Cordoba in the 10th century. Seven centuries before we had street lights in London, right? And Cordoba had a population of a million people. Uh, this was the largest population in the world at the time, okay? Uh, it was the most civilized city in the world at the time. So when Europeans traveled to Islamic Cordoba, they got baffled, they got blown away completely, you know. It's like you take uh, someone from the village uh, in one of the remotest countries in the world and bring him to New York and leave him on Wall Street. Okay, what do you think he's going to do? What do you think he's going to do? Have you, have you been to Wall Street, anyone? Okay. Right, so what's going to happen? This person is going to get blown away. Oh, wh wh where is this concrete jungle? What is this? Right? How did these people even make... So when Europeans from Germany, from Britain, from France, when they came into Cordoba as travelers, as tourists, when they looked at the civilization Muslims had created, when they looked at Muslim scientists, you know how they were dressed? They were dressed in thobes, turbans, and this dress code became the fashion in Europe. So any learned man in Europe would be dressed in a thobe and a turban. There are European paintings, medieval European paintings, where you see the teacher sitting on the pulpit and the students are sitting underneath. The teacher is wearing a turban and a thobe. And he's not a Muslim. He's a Catholic. He's a Christian. So Muslims were so influential because of the, the civilization they had achieved that the Europeans started to copy Muslim walk, Muslim talk, Muslim fashion, Muslim uh, dress code. Some of the, the Spanish caliphs were children of uh, European concubines. So the fathers were Arabs, the mothers were white European women. So when they were born, they were also white, naturally. Some of them had blonde hair. They used to dye their hair black to look Arab. These white caliphs ruling Spain, who were children of white mothers from Europe, they would dye their hair black so that they can look like Arabs. They felt inferior for looking blonde. Okay? This is a historical fact. 
This is a historical fact. And this was caused by the level of civilization the Muslims had achieved in Spain in particular, if not elsewhere. So Spain was a powerhouse. Al-Andalus was a powerhouse. Libraries, scholars teaching in every single street corner, people using astrolabes and globes and talking about astronomy and, and, and alchemy and do, do, conducting experiments on optics and you know, using telescopes and all those things and producing maps of the world. Al-Idrisi in Sicily produced the best map of the world at the time. And he was used even by the Normans after they conquered Sicily. So the details are far too many for me to deliver in one lecture. The point is, all of this science completely transformed the European life. Okay, And then later on, what we know today as the European Renaissance that came about in the 15th century when people like Michelangelo and Leonardo da Vinci and later on Galileo and other people were born and Copernicus and people like that, right? You know what they were reading? You know the books they were reading? They were reading those books that were translated into Latin from Arabic. Some of them took knowledge directly from Muslim scholars. For example, the theories of Ibn Nafis were copied by Copernicus. Galileo was reading Muslim works on science and other subjects. Uh, so what the Europeans did, they put the theology aside, they left the religion aside, they didn't accept the religion, right? But they took all uh, the knowledge on science, philosophy and other uh, uh, subjects from the Muslims. So what happened to all these books? What happened to all this legacy? A lot of it still survives to this day in manuscripts, in global libraries, but much of it was destroyed by two catastrophes. One was the Mongol invasions. The library of Baghdad was the biggest library in the 13th century. Uh, um, it became the biggest after the library in Spain uh, because the Abbasids were very fond of books as well. So when the Mongols came in, in 1258 CE, they took the city of Baghdad, killed the caliph, and uh, basically threw the entire library into river Tigris. The river became black. The ink ran black for days. There were so many books chucked into the river that the river was black for days. That was one catastrophe. We don't know. Only Allah knows what we have lost in that library, what we lost. Maybe Quran, manuscripts from the time of the Prophet and companions, Allah alam. Maybe Quran's or manuscripts of hadith written by Imam Bukhari, Imam Ahmad, Imam Shafi, all the scholars who frequented Baghdad, okay? Because this was the legacy of Muslim scholars for the last 500 years in Baghdad, which the Mongols destroyed. We don't know what we lost. We have no idea. Then the second catastrophe was in 1492, when the Catholic monarchs, Ferdinand and Isabella, um, both of them, they joined forces and they attacked the last stronghold of Muslims in Spain in 1492. They took the city or the state of Granada and one million books were burnt as a result. The entire library of Granada was uh, put to fire and they wanted to destroy Alhamra. When they saw Alhamra Palace, Ferdinand and Isabella, they could not destroy it. Just like the Catholic monarchs when they took the city of Cordoba in the, in the 13th century, when they saw the masjid, Cordoba Mosque, they could not destroy it. 
it was so beautiful it still stands to this day the horseshoe arches and the mihrab in masjid al-qartaba if you've seen it it will make you cry it will make you cry and alhamra palace uh, is, 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 i cannot describe it in words the art the artistry the the architecture you cannot describe in words how did these people even do it how did they achieve those geometrical patterns found on uh, on, on that palace the the staunchest enemies of islam and muslims in the 15th century when they saw that art they just didn't know how to destroy it they couldn't destroy it in fact they chose to be buried in that very place ferdinand and isabella so long story short brothers and sisters this was the first uh, third segment of my talk where i talked about how muslims influenced the western civilization so to this day western civilization owes heavily to the muslim civilization you need to convey this to the western civilization and people living you're living in the west if you don't know these things you cannot talk about these things and once you don't talk about these things islamophobia will continue to grow your lives will continue to become more difficult and you will be misunderstood and misrepresented as you are already right this is not even uh, a controversial statement to make anymore it is normal to talk about islamophobia as an academic subject now there are scholars writing books on this okay it's a reality it's a reality and the reason is that we are not talking to our neighbors our colleagues our people people we live with okay we are here to make money we are here to live better lives we are here to enjoy the the freedom and all that but we are not using this freedom to educate the people around us and the outcome naturally is uh, misunderstanding misrepresentation misconceptions about you right uh, so the media is not your friend there's no doubt about that the media does not want any good for you so what we're going to do we're going to have to create solutions solutions are that we become the media we start talking we establish independent platforms we start to initiate uh, the, not only the revival of that civilization but we start to initiate the education about that civilization we start to tell people that you are what you are because of what we gave you and it still continues to this day it still continues to this the islamic civilization is still very much thriving despite all the problems all the political issues all the economic problems all the social issues all the corruption and moral uh, problems in our lands it is still a thriving civilization islam still lives through us we are still to manifest that mercy which was promised in the quran by allah subhanahu wa ta'ala we can still we can still be that flower that leaves its fragrance in the hand that crushes it we can still be that flower only if we know only if we teach our children this history and talk to talk to them about it only if we get serious with it okay we have many doctors many philosophers lawyers and and engineers uh okay now we need to produce some social scientists some historians some anthropologists some thinkers some policy makers who can start talking some journalists some media hubs okay who's stopping us okay we need to create museums okay i'm pretty sure in canada there are thousands of mosques right would i be wrong to say that or oh, hundreds let's say right I I wouldn't be surprised if I was told that in Britain we have over 2000 mosques and I asked this question from British Muslims what are your mosques achieving what are your mosques achieving fine you pray your salah in them you read your tarawih 
you read your quran in them alhamdulillah but what is that masjid doing on the street outside how is that masjid impacting the society are we producing more leaders are we producing more more uh, citizens uh, who are playing a positive role in the society are we actually doing the job we are supposed to do is the question i ask okay do we need more mosques of course we do but do we need more museums 100% because there is not one museum i can point to in the uk that represents the civilization islam properly and we are 3 million muslims in the uk i'm not going to talk about canada because i'm not aware of the situation here so um i'll talk about britain where i come from okay we have 2000 mosques 3 million muslims and we do not have one islamic museum that teaches our children about our civilization how many jewish museums are there guess how many christian institutions are there taking care of uh you know the history of christianity and teaching the christian youth about the history of christianity many how many muslim museums are there representing our civilization okay talking to politicians inviting politicians inviting dignitaries influentials journalists and all these people uh you know once you bring them into an institution like that and educate them about the civilization of islam you will not find islamophobia people will not misunderstand you they will not hate you they will not love you possibly but they will not hate you they will become neutral okay leave these people to themselves because they are they are friendly they are a friendly civilization they are not what we think they are so thank you so much for listening to me brothers and sisters it's been a while since i've been speaking i intended to speak for less but inshallah um we'll move on to q and a and i'm sure you have many questions in your minds and i'll do my best to answer your questions thank you so much for listening wassalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh alhamdulillahirabbil alamin